0: I'm Laura Vinroot Pool. For 20 years I've owned Capital, an internationally recognized specialty store. Capital has never really been about fashion. It's always been about people. What we wore was created to share the meaningful journeys that inspire me. From the designers and friends I meet on the road to the men and women with whom I work each day. Everybody wants to know her. Cameron Silver. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Where are you?
1: I am currently in Boulder, Colorado.
0: but you're you're not from Boulder. Can we tell the listeners where you're from?
1: No, I'm not from Boulder, but I've sort of spent uh, I think sixty seven days here. We've been counting. really? Yes, yeah, I've been here for quite a while.
0: That would never be a place I would think. When they said you were in Colorado, I was thinking you are in Aspen. So I didn't oh, I've were- i
1: been to Aspen twice, and I'm going to tell ride right tomorrow.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't know you were a mad hippie. I mean, that's
1: Yeah, not- uh, yeah no, I totally... Um, <laughs> I, my look has completely changed. It's a mix of like American Gigolo meets, you know, a mountain man. <laughs> I like it. It sounds great. Yes, but I'm, you know, I'm originally from Los Angeles. I was born in East LA and grew up in Beverly Hills. Yeah. Um, An only
0: child, I think.
1: I am an only child, yes. For for better and for worse sometimes.
0: (laughs) I have one of those too. (laughs) I think it's for better. I hope so. (laughs) It's
1: complicated.
0: Yeah, and tell me, what was your first fashion memory, Cameron?
1: I'd say it was when I saw the movie Annie Hall. So (laughs) as an only child, my parents took me to do everything. So I was seeing R-rated films as like a (laughs) nine-year-old. But... That film made an impression on me um, because I love the the look of the fedora hat and the vest and the rolled up sleeves and the khakis and the the undone tie on Diane Keaton. So I appropriated that look once and my parents took me to Fred Siegel and um, a star was born because (laughs) every sales associate was so enamored with this, you know, nine-year-old I think I was nine or ten at the time and I realized the power of, of fashion to attract attention
0: Cameron you're really tall were you were you a tall little person too
1: not super tall but I mean I was tall for my class I mean I'm, I'm oddly tall considering my parents are little <laughs> so I was always long but you know now I'm six three, and I guess if you know you put a fedora on a nine year old, it's tall.
0: Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking you probably look great in the clothes. Were your parents shoppers, or were there were they into clothes and style?
1: Yes, my my mother continues to be a voracious shopper of questionable taste. <laughs> you know, I think her fashion heyday was definitely like the mid eighties to mid nineties. So it was. Sonia Riquiel and Azadina Laya and Claude Montana and Terry Mugler and Valentino and a little bit of Oscar, so that's when she was shopping and she and my parents were much more social at that period. My father also has always liked beautiful things. I mean, he he, he passed away, but he loved his Gucci loafers.
0: And I think you traveled a lot as a child. What did what did your dad do that took y'all on? traveling so often
1: well my dad was a personal injury attorney so that that wasn't the real reason for our travel it was really because um they loved traveling and you know when you have one child it's not so complicated and and not so expensive Uh, so they were fairly exotic travelers so by you know when I was three and a half we went to South America which was quite unusual in 1972 and 1973 to be in Argentina and Peru and and Venezuela. And and I have very strong memories of that trip. And all of our travel always included shopping. So on that trip, I can remember buying a llama puppet named Pom Pom Bom (laughs) Bomb. And I'm sure my mother bought lots of kind of Guatemalan textiles that are probably in some drawer somewhere in the house.
0: your mother being a shopper I mean was that did you already see the value in holding on to important things clothes and things from travel
1: I don't know if my mother set that example what what I did realize is that you know finding pieces on your travels helped the memories uh be more intact So, I mean, that's the amazing thing that I remember pom-pom-bom-bom at three years (laughs) old. I also remember that my mother threw it in the washing machine and killed (laughs) pom-pom-bom-bom. So I've had tremendous trauma because of that, along with my blanket white. It's one Um, of the childhood things I remember. But I I, I did realize um, at an early age that I learned a lot about places I was visiting by what was local and what was made local. And still to this day, wherever I go I like to shop local and I like to vintage shop locally. Um, When I was in Hawaii last month I was thrifting looking for aloha shirts and I have enough now that I'll be doing a pop-up in (laughs) Kona in May.
0: Cameron you're also a natural entertainer were you like that as a child?
1: Yeah I was totally performing constantly. My grandmother (laughs) was a was a pianist and taught piano till the day she died and uh, it was not unusual for me to do recitals where my grandmother would play piano and I would sing and then I would sign autographs to
0: I love uh, my
1: grandmother's penny <laughs> poker friends <laughs> but I also you know I, I took acting lessons uh, in grammar school in, in high school I was president of madrigals and I was classically trained as a singer and actually got recruited to UCLA as a sophomore in high school as an actor. Wow. So my, my training was, you know, pretty serious in both classical voice and in theater. So I went to UCLA, but my career sort of segued away from theater. I, I continued to sing when I got out of college, but I did take costume design at UCLA and I found it incredibly inspiring and I was good at it.
0: I've also read that you you did an album for Hollywood oh. Records. I, I didn't know this. Tell yes. me about this.
1: There have been so many careers. <laughs> when I graduated UCLA in '92, I started to interpret the songs of Kurt Weill and the Weimar Cabaret composer Friedrich Hollander. Of course, you did. But, yes, of course. That's what everyone <laughs> obviously. And I was touring around the country and eventually recorded an album of the show that came out in 96 or 97, almost about the same time I was getting ready to open Decade. So I always say that I used to recycle old songs and then I started to recycle old clothes.
0: (laughs) Had you done retail before? Like when was it that you decided that fashion was something you wanted to pursue?
1: Well, I always worked retail. In high school, I worked at Fred Siegel like every Beverly Hills kid uh in college I took a year off because I worked at Theodore and was making so much money that I like horrified my parents by taking a year off of school now and, and it was at that time Theodore was just amazing cuz they were I mean, they were selling Kenzo. They were the first of Dolce & Gabbana. It was like, ghost silk was like, you know, people would buy these ghost silk outfits for $1,500 and you buy three of them. Yeah. the jacket, shirt, and pants. I I wish I kept all my ghost silk because it's (laughs) sort of like how we're dressing right now. I remember there was Bajac and people of the Labyrinths.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Kath, Catherine Hamnett. So it was. Oh, God, yeah. So, so I was always interested in fashion. But what I really, really remember Saturday mornings watching Style with Elsa Clench every Saturday morning at 7.30 And I would watch it with my mom and dad. I, I never got to appear on Style with Elsa Clench. I, I did get to um, appear with uh, Jeannie Becker several times on fashion television. And, and actually, a lovely friendship developed from that because Jeannie Becker's show was. Amazing, and I remember uh, Tim Blank had a show also. Yeah.
0: All the Canadian,
1: uh, yes. Yeah, so and there was, a, I think there was a show called La, was it La 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 or Ru La La, and uh, another Canadian fashion show. The Canadians were really great with fashion television. So that was very traditional. And The other thing that I loved so much was the September Big Books, oh my magazines, and when they would drop into the mailbox, and you could hear that <laughs> thud. And truthfully, it was the first time most of us were seeing clothes that appeared on the runway, because it it was exciting. I mean, now, everything is so accessible prematurely. Then it was really exciting and I remember like I would plot out things I really wanted, and have to, you know, wait for the sale at Maxfield, (laughs) when it was called Maxfield Blue and wait for final reductions. pick up a Gautier piece or a yoji piece or some Sprouse. I was always interested in, in clothes and certainly very fortunate that my parents kind of felt they'd rather have me buy something nice on sale than you know Montgomery Ward, um, you know, <laughs> pair, like pair of like tough skin pants.
0: <laughs> How did this turn into opening to opening decades in 1997? I mean, had you been thinking about vintage for a while?
1: I, I wore vintage to my prom. Oh, I, I actually that. got my tux from Rito Watnick, who owns Lily AC. From yeah. She had her store it. on 3rd Street next to Dupre Dance Academy, where I would uh, occasionally take like tap or basic jazz, which um, I wish there were recordings of my <laughs> horrible dance ability. But I, yeah, I bought a 1940s tux that I wore to the prom. You know, I think that was fairly progressive in 1987 when I graduated yeah. high school. So I, I was interested in vintage. And then through my um, music career of singing all through the early to mid nineties, I would thrift looking for men's clothes mm-hmm. because I would be in you know, Alamogordo, New Mexico or Orlando, Orlando, Florida or Seattle or Portland. And usually I was in like a two week gig where you know you, you did the first week to get the reviews and you did the second week to get an audience. So in between the gigs, I had to protect my voice since I was, I was it, there was nobody else uh, to play me. I started to thrift initially looking for men's clothing and eventually kept finding women's and I was just sending things to my parents. So their living room, was filled with clothes at a certain point. And and so, you know, I I said a star was born at Fred Siegel. Well, (laughs) a store was born on the the road, touring glamorously.
0: And then I guess you had a clientele from Theodore just from growing up in LA, like how did you- Not
1: really, you know, I, I opened on Melrose a block and a half West of Fred Siegel. Okay. And it was, pretty barren then. Um, The Art Deco building that I'm in had had so many failed businesses uh, over the course of of many years, but I I loved, it it appealed to me. And and originally I was next to a bookstore in the building. Now I have the whole building, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really have a clientele. I had a, a mailing list because of my performing so I had some people coming because of that. And I wasn't an interloper, and this was the thing that I think really helped me launch the business. I was a native of LA. I was a guy, I wasn't mean, I wasn't crazy. I mean, that crazy, <laughs> I was you know, relatively young. I was 27 when the store opened, which now seems completely ancient when you look at someone like Billie Eilish, which right. he's accomplished <laughs> at 18. But, but uh, and I also had a very fresh perspective for vintage. I wanted everything to look modern. So the store was really edited. The collections were, were the collection was extremely edited. It was very sixties and seventies focused and people found the store. And uh, one person in particular was profoundly impactful on the store. And that was Richard Buckley, Tom Ford's partner, and yeah. husband. Richard found the store and just started spreading the word. And all of a sudden like Lisa Eisner knew about it. And then Ronnie Sassoon was coming in. And and of course, Tom Ford was coming in and people were enthusiastic to share about decades. It was really nice. And uh, somebody I had gone to summer camp when I was 13 was writing for a LA publication. So within about six months, the store was starting to get both local and national press. It was the right time because we were just starting to dress up again on the red carpet. Celebrities needed things that were unusual and one of a kind. I was the antithesis of like minimal boring, although I was very edited in what we were selling. You know, this was the time of Calvin Klein's slip dresses and, and Helmut Lang and here you could come to decades and get something folkloric by Yves Saint Laurent. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it was color, it was, and it was glamor, but it wasn't costume, which was very different from a lot of the other stores.
0: Did you ever have any advice from, from anybody else that did this, or did you just make it up as you went along?
1: I kind of really made it up. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. I always say we built the business with thank you notes. So I, <laughs> I, I really tried to do things in a very old school kind of way. Yeah. As you know, retail, you're only as good as the last sale you've had. Right. So and of course, the last year has been the most complicated year <laughs> of all of our lives. But but thankfully, we're, we're still around. It was naivete, but also I was driven. I became very social in the community of my clients. Yeah. So, you know, I was flying to Houston to go to you know, the opening of the ballet or, you know, going to New York for say Venice. And then I started going to Paris for Couture. So I was kind of in the world of my clients. I was always, you know, the poorest person in that circle, but it it helped because people trusted me and I, and I hope they yeah. still do trust me.
0: And you knew where they were wearing these things the you understood the events, you understood their lifestyle. And I think w- did, it sounds like you also started to acquire things for them. Like if somebody said, I'm the chair person of save Venice, I need something amazing. And so you would spend the next year trying to find something, or did you already? Exactly. I mean, for yeah.
1: example, right now, I'm helping a woman in San, San Juan Capistrano find her mother of the bride dress, right? And it's not just something from decades you know I've worked with a lot of other luxury brands so I will pull things from you know things from decades that are pre-loved I mean she basically needs I I don't know what the equivalent is of a trousseau for a mother of a bride but (laughs) you know she needs everything yeah I'm not a stylist but I am just a trusted partner in in the journey and I love to shop with people I've been helping a friend here in Boulder with editing her closet and and updating her wardrobe and it it, you know it's it's fun it's not brain surgery but you know i think as we're on the the cusp of getting out of the you know most difficult 14 or 15 months of of modern times um, people are excited to start dressing up and socializing and, and being philanthropic and traveling so I'm just trying to support these people on their journeys. And, you know, every so often I get to fly on someone's plane.
0: (laughs) Do you think that this past year has been harder than 2008, 2009?
1: Oh, yeah. 2008 and 2009 were easy. (laughs) Compared to, really? Well, yeah, because, you know, LA did not get that affected. And we had a lot of, we still had our Hollywood business.
0: And you have probably had a lot of people selling stuff. (laughs) Yes.
1: And then, and and even 9-11 didn't affect us that much. I remember I was supposed to be in New York on 9-11. I ended up going to Toronto and getting stuck there, but I was supposed to do an in-store appearance at Barney's where we had a vintage department for several years. And I had a major collection of YSL jewelry and ready to wear, and I couldn't be there, but even that month turned out well. And we, the day after I think on nine twelve we had so many requests, editorial requests, because magazines still had to shoot right. and needed things. So we kind of were able to navigate through that. This has been, you know, just in- insane. You know, I, I always say that I, you know, used to ha- always help people with procuring their couture. And now I'm like helping people with, you know, getting the best Aviator Nation hoodie and <laughs> and um, which UDs to buy and. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, we have a store in California also, as you know, and yes. I would say, I mean, it is a completely different world out there than it is here. Just the, the mood has been so different and it's hard, really, really challenging.
1: You know, I flew back to LA on the 31st of May. I, I had been back East. Yeah, I was in complete shock and I left LA the beginning of December. I went to Malibu to hang out and then I came to Boulder Malibu kind of felt a little bit more normal, but you yeah. know, LA has been so restricted and and has had such, um, um, you know, just a failing in, in so many aspects of the pandemic. Yeah. That, you know, when I'm in Colorado, I kind of feel like I'm in a normal place.
0: Right. <laughs> Everyone
1: has their masks on, but you go to a store and people are there and they're social distancing and people yeah. are wearing clothes. In Aspen, people are buying clothes. Yeah. So L- LA, people just sort of, Gave up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just the the mood was so completely different. Just emotionally, just more taxing, I think, than where we are.
1: <laughs> no, but but interestingly enough, I, I did a you know a couple projects with a luxury brand in L.A. of dealing with their VVIP clients, like in October and November, mm-hmm. and people were shopping. But I think it was beyond just shopping. It was about desperation to have community and conversation. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think that's one of the beauties of of brick and mortar retail that can't be replicated online. No. That people want that community and and I think you know for us like as independent retailers and people who are really hands- on with our clients who'm I, I think we would both call our clients part of our extended family yeah I, I, I think that there is such a desire for it so, we're 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 inching back to it.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your book, Decades. Tell me about the process of that. Was that something you wanted to do, or did a publisher reach out? Was it something you'd always wanted to to do?
1: I was on my way with a friend to the Nancy Reagan retrospective at the Ronald Reagan Library, and I was there with my friend Gene Stein, who's a great writer, who wrote the Edie Sedgwick book. Uh-huh. And, and she's sort of going, oh, and she, her father had been a pallbearer at Ronald Reagan's funeral. So the strong family ties. Yep. She's about as politically opposite as <laughs> Reagan. So she's like, I can't believe we're going here. And like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. And you have to write a book. <laughs> uh, on the way there, she calls her literary agent. And within about two weeks, there's a bidding war for this book. And, and it finally came out five years later.
0: And did you enjoy the process? What was it
1: like? It was very interesting because uh, Bloomsbury that published the book was very clear that this had to be a, a like a, a classic book that would get printed over and over again, of which it has. And they had a reference of a book that they had published on cooking called, I think it was the Big Fat Duck book, <laughs> which, which had been a, a phenomenal success as an oversized expensive book. right? So it was not a rushed process. I worked with uh, Rebecca De Liberto, who wrote with me and we would get together every Sunday and I would, you know, we'd have some Mediterranean food and talk about fashion and just <laughs> record everything I said. Right. And then we came up with, with the concept of a, a chapter for each decade and then the dualities of, of, you know is it Betty Page or Grace Kelly? It's both that are happening in, in one decade. Um, and then we turned in, you know, more or less the manuscript. And then the research was done for the artwork. The copy had to be adjusted, and, <laughs> and then the book gets designed. So captions have had to be made. So it was an extremely long process. I just can't believe that I'm still doing book signings. <laughs> I know. <laughs> at, at some point, I'd like to write a follow up to Decades about, you know, fashion in the twenty first century, but. It was. A, it's It's not easy to do a good coffee table book. It's really easy to, to do a mediocre one.
0: Yeah. But
1: to do a good one is a lot of work.
0: But you're proud of what you produced.
1: I am proud of it. Uh, yeah. I, I just need to write another book and I didn't get a Pulitzer. So.
0: <laughs> and speaking of fashion history, I mean, that's a huge part of what you do is it all self-taught and is it is it recent or is it you just your whole life you were interested in it in fashion history because you, you couldn't do what you do without knowing a lot
1: right I mean I I read a lot of books I have a pretty large collection of fashion history books but I I do my fabrics because of UCLA and costume design and I have right. some concept of construction I mm-hmm. mean of course I was better at hand sewing than machine sewing. I mean, I, these little, m- my huge petit ma were better at <laughs> more couture techniques. And, and I was fortunate that I grew up, you know, with, with access to things that were happening in the eighties and nineties in fashion. So I was very familiar with that. I just learned a lot over a couple of years, but I, I mean, I'm not a definitive fashion historian. I'm not a Hamish Bowles, you know, who's just like a genius. I have a good eye and I can identify things pretty quickly. But I think that my niche was really more about finding the modernity in the past and undiscovered designers and um, making things accessible. I I love storytelling. So I'm just like this, this hybrid, weird, person who's just you know trying to figure out how to retire
0: well well but i also think having the history of working in retail and understanding that you also have to sell these things you have to look at them through a different lens there because i think that they have to still be flattering they have to make you feel beautiful in order to sell and that's a pretty specific niche in itself
1: that's a really good point because i think you know a lot of vintage stores you know people would buy buy things for, for the fantasy of it. I was always buying things for the selling of it. And, right. and I still the work my way. And, <laughs> and sure, I, I have some things that we've had for 22 years that still haven't sold. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it continues to be a challenge.
0: You found your way back into entertainment through the Dukes of Melrose on Bravo and then hosting um, QVC and then Halston. Can exactly. you talk to me about this next chapter? And and all the way through, you are still you still have decades, correct? Yes,
1: yeah, so I, I still have the story. You know, I, I got sort of cornered to do the reality show for Bravo. So, you know, I did that. And and what was that. that like? Incredibly disruptive and had absolutely <laughs> no benefit to my career, to be perfectly honest. Um, the, the book was the best thing I ever did. Oh, that's so
0: interesting, that, that's yeah, it
1: interesting. Just, it's just not on brand for me. I'm not yeah. I'm not a Bravo, you know, I'm not that kind of personality. Yeah. Um, I'm getting pitched a travel show right now, like, okay, that's much more me. And the project with Halston QVC was, you know, just a, a, a wonderful mix because Halston is the, the closest to the personal style I love on people. So the, yeah. the DNA and the codes of the brand meant so much to me. And for years, headhunters would ask me like, what would you like to work on? What brand? I was was like, Halston, Halston. So it came to me and for five years, it was incredible to have the relationship with the QVC community, as well as our brick and mortar business and online business. I loved it. Now I'm just ready to to do some, you know, what, what the next thing is. And there's some really interesting projects um, that when I finally surrendered to the chaos of the world uh, <laughs> in December of last year, yeah. like, things started to happen. So yeah. you know, n- now my cup runneth over with, with opportunities and I'm most excited about you know, spending a month in Hawaii and um, you know, bringing a little bit of decades and sustainable chic to the island of, uh, to Kona. So that's yeah. gonna be a really cool project.
0: You've had such a full, as we've heard, an eventful career. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the biggest challenges and the setbacks were along the way?
1: Well, I'd say the biggest challenge retail-wise was you know having to sue my ex-business partner for embezzlement fraud and other nefarious activities. It's just, you know, unfortunately, all too common. Yeah, It just was a reminder that it's hard to trust people. Yeah, and, and I'm a very trusting person, and you know, then I had a similar experience with with a, a manager at the store who, you know, was helping me clean up a mess, and of course, this person decided to dip their hands in, in, yeah. into the into the pot. So, those have been the biggest challenges, um, just because it just you know disappointment in people's character and yeah I mean I'm the type of person who I wouldn't take a quarter out of my own register to put money in the meter without like putting a slip in like I'm just like to this day I mean I own the business 100% now I own the building 100% now but I'm not going to steal from my my own business I'm very very much into transparency so that has been the biggest challenge I'm very blessed to have a good team in in place right now you know, I have played hooky from my store since the beginning of December and everyone has been pretty sensitive to, <laughs> to that and kind of, you know, I mean, it's because it had been a really difficult year. My father passed away and, yeah. you know, I just was dealing with, with a, a lot of things that I needed, you know, to take care of myself, but I've been able to do things remotely. I, I um, I said that's the hardest thing. And is
0: there anything you wish you'd done differently or, I mean, is the lesson in it all the best part about it and.
1: Well, I mean, like the lesson sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I I, think I, the
0: lesson I, of me, just not trusting people sucks. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah it's that's terrible. I wrong
1: wish wrong. I had listened to a handful of people who said, I, I don't think you should go into business with this person. Yeah. I, we don't trust this person. And, um, you know, I just was, I, I'm very much. Like Switzerland. I never speak poorly <laughs> about people. I, I do you know Diane Pernay, who does a shaded feeling yeah, fashion? Yeah. So I mean Diane used to call me Norway. I'm like Diane, <laughs> it's Switzerland. So, I think Norway's um, neutral too. <laughs> yeah, and Natasha Fraser Cavasoni, like one of my favorite people on the planet, she calls me choir boy because I don't talk poorly about people. Yeah. And and you know, I've realized that I don't have to talk poorly about people, but I need to trust my instinct and listen to other people's instincts a little bit more.
0: I loved reading a quote from you in the beginning of the pandemic in Women's Wear Daily that said, I've never tried to be everything to everyone. That's a lesson a lot of brands will learn now. And I, I love that so much. How do you think that the pandemic has shifted fashion?
1: Well, I'm horrified by every brand choosing to become athleisure, you know, like that is not going to get people back into stores. No it, it, there is a fine line, but it's been interesting to see the brands that have stayed very much in their own kind of world and, and I, some of those brands probably have the luxury of a big backing who can ride out a storm for you know 16 months or so. Yeah but you know you look at historically, during the depression, during World War II, obviously things changed, but but fashion still provided a fantasy. It's like I love in Rachel Felder's book about red lipstick. It's like, they never banned red red lipstick during World War II, they they made it available. So I think the reaction to becoming, everyone becoming a homebody and every brand becoming, not every brand, but so many brands becoming homebody brands, how are they gonna transition out of it, and for those brands who have d- had roaring success through the pandemic in their casual attire and, and you know stretchy and, and knits, I think the consumer is going to really do a one eighty and want structure and, and you know that kind of reaction. What happened uh, at, with the roaring twenties after yeah. the last pandemic? So I think a lot of these you know, and I've been working with a lot of these comfort brands who have just like kicked. But over the last year and, and grew and grew. Mm-hmm. But I thing I keep asking them, it's like, what's gonna happen when people don't wanna wear things like this because it represents like the dark age. Right. <laughs> so I, I am curious what what fashion will look like. I mean, I can see myself wearing a jogger pant. It's, it's actually very Armani. I think Armani is, is sort of like where, where we're going to go, like the, the heyday of Armani. and yeah, like
0: Richard Gear Armani, right?
1: Exactly. To, to me, like, you put on a pair of Armani gorgeous fabric drawstring pants, but they're real pants with, with a dress shirt and an unconstructed blazer, and it's still comfortable, but it's polished. And, and so, you know, ironically, I've been... Looking for all this like vintage Armani and I got some vintage <laughs> Emporio Armani recently when I was in Dallas, but that's what I think is it's going to look like. Uh, I mean, certainly couture will probably be so over the top. Yeah, I, know. I mean, what do you think?
0: I I agree and I disagree in that I, I do think. You know, when you look at the twenties, Roaring Twenties, there those dresses were bias cut. You know, hair was short, pixie. I do think there are things that will stay. I mean, I think people have been actually comfortable for the first time in yes. many years, and so I think, I think it'll be ultra luxurious, but I think it will be comfortable. So it could be, you know, back to your Paulston or Zara, like those cashmere long sleeve gowns, knit, you know, with with crystal buttons and
1: exactly. It just has to be the luxe version of it. And I think for brands that it's not part of their DNA, it's just been so wrong. I mean, i sort of <laughs> like shocked when I get these email blasts of like what a brand is doing. It's like, I don't want that from you.
0: I know, <laughs> exactly. I know we had a kind of a stand down with a, with a designer this week and we were just kind of like, I mean, if you want to try to sell it here, you're welcome to try, but there's no way we can sell this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of, you are a part of our special retail mini-series. Talk to me a little bit about what you think the future of retail looks like.
1: Wow. (laughs) I've been thinking about this since like March 16th. Right, exactly. (laughs) Of last year. I was going to say, yeah, 2020. (laughs) As far as e-com and digital shopping, I think that it's going to become much more service-based. Yeah. So it's what much, you've
0: always
1: done. Yes. So it's like, it's so all, all everything's going to have to be service, 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 whether you're shopping on an app, it just can't feel anonymous. I mean, for example, everybody loves Apple pay because it's easy, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like Apple pay makes consuming easy, but Apple pay doesn't address what you're actually purchasing and Helping you understand how it fits and feeling the fabric, because we have such a problem with people consuming and buying stuff online and buying three sizes of something. There's so much waste oh, going yeah. on. Gross. The biggest thing I would say, first of all, is that we're going to buy less, more, better. Yeah. So, I, I think that ecom has to figure out how to decrease the amount of waste and high return rates. Yeah finally uh, I, I think it's a great moment to be an independent it's a great moment to sell something that's one of a kind that's not ubiquitous yeah I bought in Dallas a little LV crossbody like messenger bag because I thought it was cool but I was as excited about the early 80s linen high-waisted pants I found at my friend's store vintage martini you <laughs> know, so, so it's like that it's like we We have to find a way to make things a little mysterious and make discovery part of the process of fashion because having things be too accessible and too ubiquitous makes it boring and uninteresting. And and fashion is about discovery and playing dress up and and the costume changes and how your personality and carriage changes when you put something on. So it's gonna be a hybrid between uh, virtual and in-person.
0: And then what do you think about the role of uh, vintage in the future of fashion? Because it it really is the most sustainable fashion model there is.
1: It is the only truly sustainable. (laughs) But I mean, I think it will continue to grow. And obviously, the the lines are getting more blurred as to when something is vintage. Because now it's, you know, something that's two or three years old. People want to call vintage when it's really archival. My concern about vintage is that there's a lot of big players exploiting it. Yeah again, when something gets too accessible, it loses its cachet, And I just, I, I don't want that to happen to vintage. Like I don't want vintage to become Tommy Hilfiger when he's built a great business, but you know what I mean? Like I, I, I don't want there to be vintage departments in every single store and yeah. vintage. It's like, it still has to feel special. Yeah. For the same reason, luxury retail has to feel special
0: yeah I mean and let the pros like you do it the people who've done it for you know 25 years and know what you're doing I guess exactly what do you envision for yourself in the next two years what's what's the future of Cameron and decades
1: well you know I, I think decades has to figure out how to own a type of retail that we help develop which is you know this this vintage luxury retail. So I have to figure out how we can build it and scale the business, but do it with intention and good faith. At the same time, I'm very interested in traveling the decades concept. So doing these pop-ups around the country, not just with vintage, but with other sustainable brands. So to really give the customer the ease to procure the pieces that they know in good consciousness have been vetted by me and to get that kind of head to the head to toe clean echo green fashion look so that's something I'm going, going to be experimenting with in May Great. and for my and you know working on a couple new platforms I'm very interested in um, a couple new e platforms that are being developed and I'm doing some um, kind of guidance on and and. We'll see if any of them get the funding they need so that uh, uh, I can finally make some money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We touched on it earlier, but I want a much better, longer description about what you wore to the prom.
1: So my prom look was a navy 1940s tail tuxedo with a red satin super 1987
0: bow tie. That sounds gorgeous.
1: There was a limousine and I had two dates. All right. At um, the first. I don't remember. I don't remember the shoes. The only thing I really remember about the prom is that the after prom, I got really sick. It was at the palace on Vine north of Sunset. Uh huh. And everyone thought I had done like tons of drugs. And I was like this total less than zero moment. <laughs> and it absolutely wasn't. It was the chicken Kiev. Yeah, it was like, exactly. it was like so sad. No, I'm barfing because of the food. That's why I haven't had it since.
0: <laughs> have you, yeah, I bet you really haven't, have you?
1: Oh no, seriously, never.
0: Cameron, thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. This was fun.